0: Hey, Salt City. My name is Jordan. I'm the teaching and formation pastor here. If I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, I'd love to meet you after the service, especially if you're new. Thanks for being with us. Um, we're glad you're here. Grab one of our staff or the members of our welcome team. If you see somebody with a lanyard on, say hi. We'd love to get you connected. We are in the book of Amos, and it is, it's not an easy book. Uh, so this is where Drew started last week, is that God is calling down judgment on the nation surrounding Israel. It almost forms like a perfect circle when you look at where he's calling this judgment down on, almost forms like a perfect circle around Israel. And uh, then he's going to turn his attention to Israel. And a uh, shout out to Aaron Youngberg. You're getting a shout out from the stage, a guy in my connection group. He was talking about this this past week. And he was like, it's kind of like when you've got a family of seven kids And the dad is frustrated and he's kind of going down the list and he starts with the oldest and he's like, here, this is what you did, this is what's going on, this is what you need to change. Goes to the next kid and the, the baby of the family is like, yeah, get him dad, you get him. And then the dad turns to the kid and is like, oh, just wait till I get to you. Like, I know what you've done, you've started this whole thing, okay. So Israel is like that. They're the yeah, get him dad as he is sort of calling down judgment and then God turns to Israel and says, actually, you're the primary person that, that I want to talk to about this. Um, and so that's where we're going today, is God is angry with his chosen people. And we're going we're gonna to talk about the, the justice and the judgment of God and and how that can be held within the same God who deeply loves his people. And um, I actually had a moment yesterday that reminded me a little bit of this. It was this, um, honestly, just kind of an awful moment that I walked into. So Jessamy and I were on a walk in this sort of regional park area, and there was this frantic mom that started coming towards us, and she in, in tears and kind of panic, was like, have you guys seen my kid, my, my teenager? Um, I, I know from the location on his phone that he was here at like 3.45 in the morning in this park, and a jogger found his lost phone at like 6. Have you guys seen a teenager maybe like sleeping something off from the night before? And we were like, no. And so I went with her to help her to try to find her kid, and she's walking through this park yelling his name and she walked right towards there's this old kind of awful abandoned building right off the side of this park that I had, I had seen before and just kind of wondered what happened there it's it's broken down there's graffiti all over the side and this mom walks straight into this broken down building and I walked in with her to try and find her kid and it was one of the the worst places I've been the whole place smelled I mean, like, alcohol and urine. There was, like, satanic messages written on the walls. It was this building that was, like, completely broken down. And I literally started walking through this, this side room that um, was, like, pitch black. And I had my cell phone light on. And I was, I mean, terrified. And I, I'm, like, walking through this trying to find her son. I'm, like, stepping on broken glass as, I, as I'm walking through. And I couldn't find him. And I I had this moment where I walked back out and I saw her and she saw this like tarp on the ground and she ran over to it, like screaming his name, thinking maybe he was underneath the tarp. And we actually ended up never finding him. I'm not exactly sure what happened. But I had this very like visceral moment as I was watching this mom looking for a kid and there was a couple things that were happening. One, there was unbelievable love that I was watching on display because she was chasing her kid into some of the worst places imaginable. And she walked straight into that building without a second of hesitation, even though I was terrified because she was looking for a kid. But the second thing I was seeing is it was very clear that this was not the first time that this mom had done something like this. She walked right to the building like she had been there before. And I could see this just like e- exasperation in her, this like frustration, this, this anger at her kid, and I understood it, and I could almost play out the conversations that had been happening where she had been begging him, hey, don't do this, like don't go out at night, please don't run with those people, like this isn't going to end well for you, and you can just picture the teenager thinking, mom, you're being overbearing, like why are you making such a big deal about this, I'm going to be fine, and you could see like the exasperation in her if she knew it eventually was going to end here. And she was frustrated. She was angry at the self-destructive nature of this person that she loves so deeply. And I was angry at this kid that I didn't even know about what he was doing to his mom. Like, did he understand what this was doing to her? That's what the love and judgment of God is like. Is he watches us in a in our sin, in our self-destructive nature that we write off as like, oh God, you're making too big of a deal about this. Like, why are you so judgmental about this? Why are you making a big thing about this? It's no big deal. And God sees where that nature ends, where sin ends. And he's trying to call us back from that. And he's chasing us into the worst places on this earth to try to pull us back from that. And he's getting exasperated with his people because he's chased them down over and over and over again and watched them never come back. And they've been just writing him off as like, this is no big deal, God, why are you making such a big deal about this? And I think he's exasperated with his people. Look at Amos 3, verse 1. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. So that I brought up out of the land of Egypt, that that would have played on something really deep and significant in their hearts. If you remember the biblical story, if you're new to the Bible, the, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years, and they essentially had no identity as a people. All they did was work and try to produce and God brought them up out of Egypt and he set them free and he gave them a new identity as the people of God that they didn't have to produce for their identity anymore but they mattered because they were chosen they were, they were gods and so they had this collective memory of this redemption from God that, that God took them out of the land of Egypt that they were his people. Now why did he take them up out of the land of Egypt? The first half of Verse 2, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. He saved them out of slavery in Egypt because he wanted to know them. Now, the biblical word for know doesn't mean to know about. He, he doesn't mean to kind of know like some facts or details about them. The word know means something like the way that a husband knows his wife or a wife knows her husband. It's this this intimate relational knowledge. And so God brought them up out of slavery to save them so that he could have this, this deep interconnected relationship with him. That's why he brought them out of slavery is because he wanted them. He wanted to know them. He wanted relationship with them. And so he chose them. Not because they were a great people. The Old Testament clarifies that. They weren't the most numerous. They weren't the most obedient. They were chosen simply because God chose them. He just just loved them. And he was like, I I want relationship with you. I, I choose you. That's your story. You know that? You didn't at base level choose God. He chose you. He wanted relationship with you and so, so he, he came after you and he, he brought you into his love. You were an orphan. You didn't try out to be adopted. He just chose to adopt you and he, he chooses to bring you into his family so that he can know you the way a dad knows his kid. That's your story. That's how you came into relationship with God that that one-sided love he loved you first and then you loved him but then listen to to what happens next god says you're my chosen people i set you free so that i can have a relationship with you therefore this is the second half of verse 2 because of that i will punish you for all your iniquities it's not what you thought was coming It it seems like it's starting out as kind of a love poem to these people, and it's just going to keep going, like maybe like a psalm or something like that, but it it, it switches quickly and and begins to be about punishment for iniquity. Why is that? Well, because these people, God's chosen people, started to presume on the love of God. And they thought that their chosen status as his people meant that they could live however they wanted and that it would be fine. They thought that their their chosen status protected them, insulated them from any judgment or discipline coming their way. And so they abandoned their first love to live however they wanted because they thought they were special. And so God warns them with this judgment and a warning about the judgment that is coming. And we're going to talk about that today, but I want to just stop here for a second. Let Let me... unpack what's about to happen, is that Israel will not listen to God. So the first time that this warning from Amos was given to the people of God, they did not hear it. What will happen this time? Will you hear his warning? And will you turn back to him? Will you be different from Israel? Or will you make the same mistake that they did, assuming that your religiosity will protect you from some of this discipline and that you're fine and that this word isn't really for you? Or will you let it land and will it do something in you? So he goes on to explain what he means by punishment. This is uh, verses three through six in chapter 3 There They're these sort of series of, of poetic examples where the implied answer to all of them is is no so so and he's he's leading to a point so let me just give you an example so so one of these these little um, poetic examples is does a lion roar in the forest when he has his prey and the implied answer is no so let me let me translate that a lion when it's stalking its prey is not roaring it's trying to be Quiet, Right? It's trying to sneak up on its prey. It only roars once it's caught its prey or when it's got its prey cornered. Right? So the implied answer here is no, a lion does not roar in the forest before it's gotten its prey. L- look at another one. It says is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? So the context here is when there would be an attack on a city, there was a person who would see that attack coming and they would go around blowing a trumpet so that the city would be warned. And so hearing a trumpet immediately meant fear. So is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? No. So all of these examples that enter in the assumed answer of no, build up to verse 6. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? And of course the answer is no. Disaster comes on a city because the Lord has done it, because he has approved of it. So God is looking at his people, and he's saying, I want to be very clear about this. You're about to be taken over by an invading land, and everything you know, all the comforts that you currently have will be removed from you. Things will not stay good in your life, and I just want to be clear with you so that you don't mistake it, that's me. God is saying, I'm the one that's bringing about that calamity on your life. Let me ask a different question. Does COVID fall on the earth unless God does it? No. Does the social and political erosion of American culture happen unless the Lord does it? No. Okay, why? Why would God do something like that? It's a valid question, it's an important question. He answers that question in chapter 4. Flip over to chapter 4. Chapter 4, <clears throat> verse 6. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. Clarification, God is not a dentist. He's, okay, he's not talking about like, oh, that's nice. You have really nice pearly whites. Cleanless, cleanness of teeth means they don't have any food stuck in their teeth because they haven't eaten. It's a, it's a famine. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Jump down to verse 9. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Verse 10. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses. And I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Question, what is the repeated phrase in all of those sections? Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. You see, at the end of all of those sections, he's giving the reason for why some of that judgment or that discipline was coming. It was designed so that they would return to him. So we just learned a couple things here. First, we learned the reasoning for God's judgment or his discipline in life, and we learned what the Israelites did with it is God brings these these terrible things into their world so that they would wake up. It's like an alarm clock going off by their head saying, Wake up! Eternity is coming. You have to live differently. You can't keep going this direction that you're going in life or you'll die. He's trying to pull them back to him. That's the purpose of the hard things that are happening in their life. That's what we just learned. And we learned that the Israelites didn't wake up. They didn't hear the message. They didn't see what God was doing in the world. Listen, the purpose of judgment or discipline from God is to bring you back to him. Punishment can be redemptive in God's hand. But we struggle with this. We struggle to think about God as a God of justice, as a God of judgment. And we can land somewhere on a spectrum with how we think about this. We can think of maybe suffering, maybe if you want to categorize it like that as opposed to judgment, because there are some aspects of judgment that get a little bit confusing. I want to acknowledge that of like, what is the Christian's relationship to judgment and to discipline? I, th- I think I'm still trying to unpack that and learn that. I'm trying to learn that from the book of Amos. So, so let's just categorize this with, with suffering. Suffering as a result of a fallen world. There's, there's one way that you could look at that is you could say, man, this is bad luck. Or you could adopt a victim mentality. Say, everything is, is going wrong, and, and it's injustice in my life. I don't deserve this, and I'm, I'm frustrated by it, or I'm crushed by it. Or you could go to the other end of the spectrum, and you could blame God. And you, you could say, I don't deserve this, therefore, God, you are wrong. This isn't the way you should rule your universe. And, and I hear this interesting thing a lot that I actually empathize with because I was at this place in my life. Right before I became a Christian, I was wrestling with suffering and trying to come up with answers to it. And I couldn't understand how a good God would allow some of the things to happen in the world that were happening in particular that were happening to me. And so I was questioning him and saying, God, if you're like this, then I can't believe in you. In other words, if you don't run the universe the way I would run the universe, then I'm just going conveniently, to conveniently say that you don't exist. But whether you prefer the way he operates the universe or not is not a commentary on what's true. It's not a commentary on what's real. And so you can land somewhere in that perspective. And and can I just ask you not to take that, in particular, that second approach right now. And over the coming few weeks, as you hear a hard word from Amos, don't allow yourself to indulge the temptation to say, God, this is, this is injustice, this isn't fair, you shouldn't punish people, this is just kind of like Old Testament stuff that, that I'm going to write off. You don't get to put God on trial. He's not the one that's on trial. The reason we come under the, the discipline of God is not because God has done something wrong, it's because we have done something wrong. Or it's because that suffering, the brokenness in the world can bring about redemption that wouldn't have occurred otherwise. Let me give you an illustration of this. BWP. Guys, that was so fun. That was one of the best days I've had in at least a year. I, it, was, it was amazing. I, I hope you got to, to watch it. If you didn't, go back and watch it. It's on, it's on YouTube. You can, you can pick it up. It's worth watching. But what was one of the, the most consistent things said during those baptism testimonies? I was walking away from God, or I was doubting God, or, or I didn't have any friends, and I was doubting, and I was discouraged, and then COVID hit. And then through that, I, I realized I was desperate and needed friendships, and through friendships, I, I found salt company, or through that, I realized my brokenness, and I found God, or whatever, but just over and over and over again, it was like, I was broken, then suffering came in the form of COVID, and then I found Jesus there. And COVID weirdly became this like super positive word for like one night, because God was like using it to do something amazing in people's lives because that's the type of thing that God does. And so let's hear this word from Amos. Let's learn from this. Look, don't write this off as like, this is just some Old Testament thing. Like, like, let me just see if this contextualizes well to our culture. Here's the reason why God was bringing judgment to the people at the time. Number one, hypocritical, ceremonious religion. And number two, the mishandling of wealth. Let's just see if any of those happen to land with us or our culture. Hypocritical, ceremonious religion. Amos 4, verse 4. Come to Bethel and transgress. Come to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. So this is interesting because Bethel was this this focal point of religion. And he's saying, come to the temple, come to worship service and sin. That's what that word transgress means. It means rebel, fight against God. Come to the temple and fight against God. It's, he's, he's sarcastically communicating something and this is what he was communicating is that their lives didn't match their ceremonies. They, they weren't practically loving people. They, they were oppressing the poor. They weren't exercising God's love for other people in their life, and then they were coming to these religious ceremonies and thinking that that would make them right with God. They, they had isolated religion to this kind of one-time event or couple-time event a week and thinking you could be religious over here, and then your life of love didn't have to change over here, and God is saying, look, this thing you're doing over here, these religious ceremonies, they're offensive to me. They're, they're disgusting to me because of the way you're living over here. That's not how religion works. So I had this, this incredible opportunity. Drew, Drew mentioned this is, uh, a couple weeks ago. We, we got to go to the, the Civil Rights Museum uh, in Atlanta. And one of the, the most amazing parts of that museum to me was this sort of temporary display on the life of Martin Luther King Jr., and one of the things that they had was his manuscripts of some of the sermons and speeches that he wrote. And so I was, like, looking through, like, his handwriting, and I got to this back section, and there was his I Have a Dream speech. And I got to see, like, in his writing and his scribbled notes, the things that he cut out. And I it was this unbelievable moment of, of just, like, this this. Incredible man from history that I got this little like piece of it here. Okay. I want you to imagine that there was a person that went to that display every single day and thought about how amazing Martin Luther King Jr. was. And, and he had all the manuscripts in there like memorized. And then let's say that that MLK was alive today. And he got to meet this person, right? And this person that had been going to the museum every day said, Man, I'm such a big fan of you. Like, I'm so thankful for your work. I've been going to the museum every day, and I've been studying your manuscripts. And then imagine that that MLK found out that this person was consistently living in injustice and a lack of love to the people around him. and was actually just a blatant racist. Would MLK look at that guy's life and say, man, you're doing great. Thanks so much for following me. No, because it doesn't matter if he's showing up to the museum, if his life hasn't changed. Look, it doesn't matter if you're showing up to church and you're saying some religious words if Jesus isn't transforming your life. Now, of course, that doesn't happen immediately and that doesn't happen perfectly, and of course that hasn't happened immediately or perfectly in my life. I feel the weight as I'm saying this. But I'm just saying that, that religious form, religious ceremony is not what Jesus is about. He's about transforming your life so that you start to put on his character in the world. That's the type of religion that he wants. And so he's pushing back on that. Second, he's pushing back on the mishandling of wealth. Amos 4 verse 1. Hear this words, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. I don't care what culture you're in, calling a group of women cows is not great. <laughs> like that, that is, it, there is no culture where that wasn't offensive. And so, this is clearly intended to be sharp and offensive in some ways. And this is is not Amos just kind of unapproved saying what he wants. This is a word from God through him. So why such sharp language? Well, because judgment was coming on them because they were living self-indulgent lives. And through that self-indulgent life, they ended up oppressing the poor. Because they needed to support their lifestyle of fun and indulgence. And so instead of using what God had given them to be generous towards other people to lift them up, they were using it to just indulge themselves. Their lifestyle was creating a lack of love for people in a different category than them. And we've got to see ourselves in this. Like, like your, your lifestyle, they're, they're saying one more drink, right? One more time out, one more time eating out, one more dinner on the town, a little bit more time with friends and you'll end up spending all of your money on yourself and you won't be able to be generous and therefore your life of luxury will negatively impact people that you could have been serving and blessing that in fact God gave you what you have so that you would serve and bless them and so God is giving them this strong warning that what they think is minor and insignificant is a big deal to him that it's actually the the heart of religion and we can tend to write off these kind of small sins or that we think are small sins and it's a big deal to God and so God lovingly is giving them a warning Now, why do I say lovingly? How is this warning loving? Have you ever seen a semi or a truck or something like that about to drive under an overpass and just wonder like, "Uh -uh, are you going to fit? Like, it seems like you're cutting it close. Do these things ever get stuck? Because I do on a very regular basis. And I've I've answered that question, no, they're not going to get stuck. They know what they're doing. And Um, well, my answer has changed after this week. So I was driving and I turned a corner and then I was in just this giant lineup of cars trying to figure out what was going on. And I kind of like looked up ahead and there was this, this truck that was literally like shredded. Like there was a platform, the truck platform, and then the sides of the truck were like hanging off of it in pieces. And you could see like the contents that were in the truck And it was just on the other side of a bridge, and apparently it had gotten stuck underneath the overpass, and it couldn't do anything at that point besides just, I don't know, try to, like, keep driving and get through it, I guess. And the bridge ripped apart the truck. And then later, as I was driving past, there was a train that had, like, stopped on top of the bridge, and there was all these engineers and stuff looking at it. So I don't know if there was, like, issues with the train. I didn't hear anything about a train collapsing on a bridge, so hopefully we're good, but uh, it, it just completely shredded the truck. Now, I want you to imagine that there was a person that saw that this was about to happen. Right? Like, how, how does that happen? Just overconfidence. You just assume that you know how tall it is and how tall your truck is. You're just going for it. But imagine that somebody, like, looked at the gap, looked at the truck, and went, no, this isn't going to happen. And so decided to warn them about it. And so they're running alongside the truck, banging on the side of the truck, Maybe like throwing stuff at the window, doing whatever they can, yelling like, hey, stop, stop. Okay, imagine they get their attention and they stop. Is the truck driver going to get out and freak out on that person and say, how dare you? How dare you tell me what to do with my truck? No, they're going to say, thank you. Because they kept them from disaster, right? A warning with impending disaster is not hate, it's love. This is what I'm saying, if you indulge in sin, if you indulge consistently in a selfish, self-indulgent life in whatever fashion that takes, you are about to shred your life. You will destroy your life, and you are headed towards death, and when God comes alongside you and strongly warns you with whatever means necessary, that is not hate, that is love, Because he's trying to prevent you from that destruction. God is warning you about what you don't see coming. And the loudest warning in our ears should be the life and death of Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus came to earth to live is remarkable and should be an unbelievable wake-up call to us. Jesus was a prophet, just like Amos. And he was burdened by the brokenness and the injustice of the world that he entered and decided to walk around on. And instead of just kind of living it up with his rich friends and, and sort of taking on the status as a prominent teacher, he went and he, he drank and he ate with, with sinners and with broken people, the people that the religious people had rejected. And he looked back at the religious people and he said, hey, this is what true religion is. It's living life with the outcast and with the poor. And he advocated for them. And he offered healing to anyone who would come to him. And he healed people to the point of exhaustion. He he gave up his life for this earth, and he preached boldly to crowds. But the vast majority of those crowds enjoyed the show that they got to see in Jesus. But they, a few days later, were yelling, crucify him. They didn't really care about him. In other words, they rejected this prophet's message just like Amos' message was rejected. And our tendency is to do the same. To not see the weight of his message. And Jesus would have been incredibly justified in that moment to bring down justice in that moment on the earth. But instead of unleashing his justice on humanity on the spot, Jesus was the lion that became a lamb. And as the lion... Began to to pounce in judgment, Jesus the Lamb stepped in front of that justice and was consumed on our behalf. Jesus stepped in so that he was consumed by the judgment of God, not us. But in order for that sacrifice to be applied to your life, you have to turn. You have to turn from the way that you were going from the things that you think are right and good that are contrary to God, and you've got to come back to him. You've got to turn from the things that would destroy your life and come back to life in him. See, Jesus is committed to making a good and just world. That's why he came. And he's committed to eradicating evil from this world forever. That's why he died and rose again from the dead. But he will eradicate evil. He will do it. And he will do it either by you giving him the evil out of your life in repentance and turning from it, saying, I don't want this anymore. I'm not identifying with it anymore. And he will dispose of it for you or he will dispose of you. He will eradicate evil from the earth. Amos 4.13, for behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what it is, what is his thought and makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. He treads on the heights of the earth. The lowest point of his barely touches the highest point of heaven. This is our God. He is not tame. He is a roaring lion. He does not ask anyone for permission. To, to, to bring justice to the earth. He doesn't ask you if it's okay if he's the judge. He is the judge. And he does not care if you're offended by the sharpness of his love because it's good and it's right. Verse 12, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. So that word to meet, it's actually, I think Amos is playing on words. That word to meet means two very different things in scripture. 29 times in the Old Testament it's used for war. It's like Israel comes out to meet the Assyrians. It's it's conflict, it's war. But the other thing that that word means in Scripture is to eagerly anticipate and run out to a friend. At times it, it is described as Moses meets with God. And I think this is what he's saying, is you will meet God. All of us will stand before him. We will meet him face to face. And either you will be warring against his justice. You will be angry with him for who he is and trying to live your own life. That will not end well for you. Or you will agree with him about what he says about you and about the world. And you will meet him as a friend. Jesus has called us friends one of the most remarkable truths in the universe. Be his friend, not at war with him. Let's pray. God, you are not tame. You are the the roaring lion. And we just, we confess, God. We confess that we've forgotten who you are and forgotten how strong you are and have tried to live for ourselves, but we want to come back to you. We want to repent as a church. And we just, we want to agree with you, God, about what you say about us. We, we, don't, want to, we don't want to war with you. We don't want to fight with you. We, we want to agree with you. We want to humble ourselves before you. And God, thank you for choosing us. Thank you that you loved us before we ever loved you. And we want to live in that love. We want to, we want to follow you. We want to, we want to know you and be known by you. And so please, God, forgive us of our sins. We repent. We. We want to return to you, God. We don't want to keep arrogantly pushing you away. We want to come back to you. So God, heal us. Heal our church. Help us to live true religion. Not be okay with theoretical religion. By your grace and by your power, we can't do any of that on our own. We have no ability without you, but with you we have the power to be transformed to live out your character and your goodness on the earth. And so please, let that happen here. God, we love you. Amen.